Hello and welcome to episode 48 of Coffee and Circuses, or should that be episode 47B, as we're picking back up where we left off from the previous episode with Richard Rees. In this part, Richard rounds off how he ended up as a lecturer at UCL, we discuss why the study of Roman coinage became such a large part of his work, why making mistakes in your work isn't such a big deal if the desire to correct them propels your work forward, and what led him to write a book on late antiquity. Also, Richard reflects on how his students have become prominent figures in their own right, and why he's happy that none of them sound very Riesian, if you remember that word from last week, in their work. So ladies and gentlemen, I won't keep you, as this is the second part of a two-parter episode, but as always, thanks for joining me, and here's Richard Reese, part two. So that sorted getting into Oxford and so on. So, oh right, we haven't got there yet. Um, <laughs> so the thesis was done, and then John Kent from the British Museum used to go to the Institute of Archaeology and do a short course on coins. Went off to the States for a year um, and just nonchalantly said to uh, Donald Strong, oh, Richard will come and do that. So he came and did that, and Donald took me into his room afterwards and produced a glass of sherry and said, um, Mark and I are finding it quite difficult keeping everything going, and um, we think there might be a job coming up in the near future, and we'd quite like you to apply for it, with all the other people as well. That was that. That was that. Wow, jeez. That was a run-through of who's who of uh, Roman and British archaeology. That was incredible. Um, there's so much of that, though, that I think is... Uh, I suppose in many walks of life, but particularly as I found in archaeology, you, to some degree, make your own luck. Because a lot of that was about you going out and actually doing, doing your own work under your own onus. And then, as yeah. you say, the fact that you went and did the dig and you had to be in that situation to actually meet the person that then funded the PhD if you hadn't been going, taking yourself out there to do the dig, you mm-hmm. wouldn't have met him. And sometimes it feels like being in the right place at the right time. But a lot, so much of that I know is also just going out there and making the effort to actually do a lot of things. Just trying to get involved with uh, local societies, keeping in mm. sort of digging up, mm. spend some time working commercial work, trying to go to as many talks as I can or conferences just to meet people. But just getting to know people and just putting, making the effort a lot of the time, I think is something that... I think particularly I found in archaeology people value it, that, that if you're just willing to make effort as a baseline that people see that and then I say it then puts you into those positions when they they know you and if something comes up they have you in mind like yes. they'll make up they join yes. the dots as you said there like people, like somebody just being like oh Richard can do that it just you know it, it just happens to be the case and uh, yeah, that's incredible coming off the back of a degree with, with a 2-2 and then going on to and getting where you got to. Sometimes I think it can be very easy that even now you can look at the grades that you get and think, oh, okay, well, I'm kind of done here with academia, but maybe it's not, you've not quite found the the right path that you're on in that respect. Because as you said, clearly in your case, it was meant to be, not meant to be archaeology, but archaeology was the, was the thing that you should have been going into. That was the, kind of your, your home in the end. Mm. And biochemistry was something that 
you, know, you said you, you were attracted to doing it, mm. saw the appeal of it, and it was a great experience, but it, it was kind of a means to an end to get to, to archaeology in some respects, even though it didn't seem like it necessarily at the time. Yes, I don't think that sequence could happen today. No. Simply because of contract archaeology and things like that, and the small number of excavations um, which aren't contract archaeology, and also the gap now more between... Well, it's changed. Uh, at one stage it was schools trying to get in touch with universities, whereas now... I suspect the boot is on the other foot mm. with the universities trying like anything to get in touch with schools um, and get hold of students. Yeah. Except for a few, yes. Yeah, yeah no, it's, it is a very different dynamic nowadays. Uh, it's crazy, actually, when I interviewed uh, Richard uh, Hobbs for the podcast, Richard was talking about how he got in at the British Museum, just essentially phoning them up and just being persistent. And then they were like, we've got some money to do a project, do you want to come in? And then you mm. stayed after that. <laughs> when I spoke to people about that afterwards, they listened to it. They, remember we said, like, I can't imagine that happening nowadays, like, just getting in contact with somebody. I mean, maybe it could happen, but it was, uh, it just seemed like one of those things, like now to get a job at, say, the British Museum, the number of steps to go through, to kind of get in that way, it seemed, yeah, it, it, it did feel like that's something that, couldn't necessarily happen nowadays like mm. the, the landscape mm. has changed that so those avenues aren't open I, I mean i still think i still think though that moral of in the story in terms of persistence i think is important and that putting yourself in the right you, you know you don't just fall into the right place at the right time sometimes you do but a lot of the time you you kind of make your own luck really you've got to go out there and yeah. make the effort to meet yeah. people and talk to them and, and discuss with them and that that's the that's the way of keep pushing yourself forward if you're if you just stay very inward looking and expect just to progress, that's probably not going to happen. It can happen for people, but I think, I don't know, my own kind of career so far, I think I've gained a lot out of just trying to go meet people and just trying to, let's say, demonstrating effort and trying to get involved and, you know, be part of the archaeology community. I don't know, maybe more way putting it. No, that doesn't attract me. Either, <laughs> um, I mean, I've got to ask. Your name has become, I would say, synonymous now with Roman coins, particularly Ro coins of Roman Britain. How? How? No. Oh. Uh, expression of pain. Oh. <laughs> I was going to say how, all the books, but yeah. Ha having, yeah. having spent almost two or three years working on, uh, at different times, working on the coins from the centre of Rome, uh, Benghazi, um, Carthage, Jerusalem. Um, that always tends to get... The trouble is that all those reports are published in um, excavation reports, which are perfectly proper, but people don't pick up on the... Specialist reports, I suppose. They just mm. read for the um, the archaeology. But yes, and the fair number, and France. I think one of, one of the intriguing things is if I don't think it would be true to say that if a person knew my name in Britain, they would necessarily connect it with coins. I don't think so. Whereas if there was somebody in a conference in France or Germany who knew the name, then that they would they would definitely connect it with coins. 
So that's all right. I'll, yeah. retract, I'll retract the note of pain. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I interrupted you in the middle of one of your no, sentences. No, free. Uh, I was just going to say, why do you think coins for you ended up playing such a uh, big role in what you do? I think it was mainly mechanical in that um, that was the first thing that I got competent at. So there was an element, there was a mechanical element in it. If somebody produced a collection of coins, um, I could simply work through them and identify them. Yeah, great. Um, and then since they'd come from different places in Britain, uh, no, I'm jumping ahead. Barry Cunliffe was given Richborough um, the remains of Richborough, as it were, to edit and get into print because Bush Fox was never able to, through ill health, was never able to finish it off. So Barry gave me the um, coin lists, which were excellent coin lists, but needed updating and references and do something with it sort of thing. So in Richborough, was it Richborough 5 that Cunliffe edited? Or was it 4? Can't remember. Um, in the final Richborough volume, I did the coins and I produced a histogram and made a classic mistake, which I suppose was very helpful, in fact. Um, I drew the histogram. I said, there's a lot of coins uh, at that date. Therefore, the fort is flourishing. There's none there, or very few, it's in the doldrums, springs up again in the 270s, 260s, 270s, um, which fitted because there's the earth fort of that date, gets in the doldrums again and then really goes um, berserk in the later 4th century, which fits in with the stone fort. So it happened that the histogram was interpretable in terms of the archaeology of the site. That was great luck. But then I started gathering um, together the coins which I'd done from various places because um, people were constantly sending them in. And to, at first, to my horror, I realised that if you averaged out coins from the various sites, they looked exactly like the Richborough histogram. Yeah. And it just isn't true that everywhere is going great guns in 260, 270, and great guns in mm, Constantine, mid-Constantine. It's simply that there are more coins lost everywhere in Britain. So that mistake, it was great to be able to sort I spotted that mistake before anybody else did, luckily. Um, that could have been really embarrassing. Um, but then that automatically led on to, yeah, okay, I've got enough stuff on uh, Britain. What's it like in France? Well, at that stage, you just couldn't do the comparison because there were so few coin lists published. Um, even when I went over there and went into the Bibliothèque Nationale to see the one or two people who 
the British Museum knew of, they only knew the people in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris. Um, and I said, right, you know, great to meet you and all the rest of it, uh, where do I go next? And I was met with shrugged shoulders yeah. and we haven't the faintest idea, you'll just have to go out and go to Roman coins, uh, towns, and see if they've got Roman coins. So I did. And Richmond came in useful here. Um, no, it was earlier, sorry. Um, I'd said, I'm going to the south of France. Uh, I want to see all the Roman stuff. Where do I stay? He immediately said Avignon, which isn't an ob obvious answer, except that it's the it was then the hub of the local bus system. Right, by that time I'd got a bubble car and so was able to go round the south of France. And then it was a matter of, okay, what about Italy? And the bubble car managed the Alps both ways. Uh, and then fill in the north of France. And then we began to get a, a survey. You wouldn't have to do that now because um, there were mm, a fair number of um, substantial coin reports from France. But they just were not in existence in 1968. Um, so I suppose the answer is that I was correcting, trying to correct myself all the time and expand outwards and see if, first of all, is the picture from one site different from the picture of other sites in Britain? No, not really. What about British sites versus, let's have a control. And that, I think, is where the biochemistry came in. Mm. That if you do an experiment, you've really got to have a control to know whether what you're looking at produced the results or whether it pure accident or whatever. So Britain became the control for France, France for Italy, and so on. By which time it had taken up so much of my life that... Um... <sighs> it's interesting when you say they were actually about just uh, correcting your own mistake and how they moved forward. I think uh, it goes back to what we were saying earlier as well. Sometimes the endeavour to be right. The, the fact is that everything we do is constantly evolving anyway. And I think sometimes... <laughs> It's not a great feeling when you look back at something you've written, particularly when you published it, and then you realise, like, oh, I kind of got that a bit wrong. But the important thing is if you recognise it, and then it pushes you to actually correct the mistake, or mm -hmm. try to correct the mistake, and it mm -hmm. keeps pushing you on and advancing it. I've come to realise that that is actually just an important part of the process. Um, I mean, with the way things are now in terms of with the ref, and, you know, to be able to get a job, you need to publish, like, very rapidly. Like, after I finish the thesis... I would like to have taken a bit more time to develop a book out of it. Um, but, yeah, nowadays you're under so much pressure to do it quickly. But I also realised that once I got, got it out there, I was like, there's nothing to stop me writing another book in future that looks back what? on this one and says, I got, all this, I got some of this stuff wrong at the time. It was I hadn't quite got to the end of the road with some of these ideas. And, and even now, actually, there's stuff that I've gone on where I've developed since then. And you just realise that it's a stepping stone along the way. And interesting enough, actually, I think as well, something I try to communicate to the students as well. Nobody ever really necessarily has entirely the final word on something. There's always capacity for somebody else to come along and correct you or correct yourself, no matter what kind of stage you're at in your career.
Mm, I, I don't think I've ever thought that. I think it's correct, but I don't think I've ever... It was just what's come on the last post or who brought those in and... Um, or like the Roman Britain thing, um, no, you know, that isn't... I'd go as far as saying that isn't right. Well, it, it, it can't be right if you don't take the majority of the population into account. Mm. And uh, that was already sorted out in uh, who, who were the people who were working out the population of Roman Britain in the 1920s. There was some quick fire, was it Collingwood? He was involved. Um, and it started off, a, oh, I think about half a million will do. And then somebody else writes in, yeah, that's it. I think it's Collingwood in antiquity and a farmer or whatever in antiquity saying, oi, you know, you can't, it can't possibly be as low as that. You must add in farm workers or whatever. So it goes up to a million and then a million and a half and so on. Um, and the realisation came in at that stage, but their lives didn't somehow. Mm. Except for someone like George Joby up on, up on the wall, digging sites which have very little structure, not many finds. Um, but it's the, it's the insulation as well, both territorial and chronological. I reviewed a book for um, in the Journal of Roman Archaeology. Uh, they were looking at frontiers and goings-on in the later Roman Empire, North, West Europe and Britain. And I drew a comparison between how the continental scholars, all writing in English, um, were not isolated in their specific period. So that the Romanists in, um, say, the Netherlands and Belgium happily wandered over into post-Roman, whereas the British contributions... Those are, no, the English contributions were carefully wrapped up in the Roman Britain time scale. Fraser Hunter on Scotland is quite different in that um, he goes where the archaeology leads him. Mm. So, so it, it does seem to be a specifically British um, characteristic. Mm. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. Just a quick note there, you know, mentioning Collingwood, something else of yours I was looking at earlier. Um, you quoted Collingwood, but I think you quoted him in terms of one of his papers from Metaphysics. Yeah. Oh, um, people are very ticklish on, uh, that's the on quote. in their philosophy. No, uh, yeah. uh, people are apt to be ticklish in their absolute presuppositions. Ah, yes, yes. Um, I that's, a, that's a fantastic statement. Yeah, yeah. I, you just struck me though, because I was just talking to people before about people like, for example, Collingwood, who was somebody that had such a big impact in different spheres. But sometimes mm. people well, don't always realise that those people crossed the boundaries they did so significantly. I was just wondering, have you, have you read a lot of Collingwood stuff like outside of his archaeology oh, all stuff? All of it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's fantastic. I'd love to have met him, but... Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, it's just interesting, as I say, we've talked before about these people that he's cross the prin- Principles of art, I think, are superb. But he's gone in and out of fashion, what, two or three times since he died. So mm-hmm. he, ha- he had a lapse and then came back again. And there was a conference on him, wasn't there? And, and Tessa, his daughter, was there. Um, then I think he's probably dropped back a bit now, but mm. never mind. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, you um, mentioned him to some professors of uh, philosophy in Oxford, and you virtually get blown away with disdain. Right. Oh, 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 really? I mean, that's all, but so subjective and not. Uh, anal- logically analytical or whatever. Mm. They're very nice people. I talked to them, but mentioned Collingwood and all would be lost. Yes. Yeah. Um, no, I've read all of his stuff. Yeah. Well, I was just interested, just because I say it's it's not always nowadays the case. As you say, he goes in and out of fashion to yeah. some degree anyway, yeah. but also yeah. the. People, for example, on the archaeology side, I've spoken to people before and mentioned that his, his actual primary career wasn't even in archaeology. They didn't really realise that. Ah, uh, uh, mm, Arthur's uh, something or other up on the wall. Arthur's Oon? Was it that? Oh. There was one thing which he dug and he was completely convinced that it was Roman. And everybody else ever since has been totally convinced it's something else. I'd have to look it up. I kept, I got that from Christopher Hawkes because we were arguing about something at some stage and he brought that forward and I looked it up and he was quite right. Yeah. But just actually, uh, my segue actually, in terms of social media legacies, I was wondering, how does it feel now though to, to look at the fact that you've had a number of students over the years that have gone on and had such a significant impact in their own right Archaeology. I mean, here at Kent now, we've got Ellen Swift, we've previously on the podcast, we've had Richard Hobbs, we've Andy Gardner as well. How does it feel seeing students that have gone out and had such a tremendous impact in their own right? Because I, I know every single one of them would say, and they have done on the podcast, that you played a big role in that. Steve Willis, um, as we were talking about before the podcast, Steve floating around somewhere on campus referred to you as his intellectual godfather as well. But yeah, but how does it feel to just to do to have that impact? I mean, I'm at stage now relatively early on. Uh, fingers crossed, I'm still being employed as a lecturer in coming years. But um, I've seen students now that have actually graduated, or students that are coming to the end of their graduation, and um, and it's just been great to to have some of them say to me that they enjoyed my teaching and mm. that it's had a positive impact on them and some of them um have gone away, like gone on from uni and, and and developed from there they've they've i mean in, in some respects some of them maybe discovered an interest in the subject they didn't even really know they had to some degree they mm. or or you know through feedback or whatever it's giving them a sense of like oh I can do this and it there's i don't know there is a very there is a very satisfying feeling of having had that impact in some respects i found even more so than some of the 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 archaeological work or whatever that i actually produced but i was wondering from from your perspective having seen your students get on and have been so successful what, how does that feel to you to have played a role in that well if i did play a role in that probably i mean they came to my courses so yeah okay right um the i think it's the important thing is that 
the time when those students were going to university, the the, the courses at the institute um, were possibly were some of the most attractive. So I was lucky in getting good students into my courses. Uh, what they did afterwards, very, very varied. And as you say, um, quite a few of the ones who became full-time archaeologists have had quite an effect in their own right, which is great. Um, I don't think an outside observer could say they were Reese students, which I'm glad about. I, mean, <laughs> I don't think there is such a thing as a, a, an ex-Reese student. So there's Reesean writing, but there's not a yeah, Reesean student. <laughs> I don't think so. I think they're so different in their interests, in their methods, um, in their writing. And I'm very glad about that. If it is true, I think it is true. Because every so often um, I'm talking to somebody and I say, oh, yeah, yeah, he was one of my students. Was he? So it was obvious that they had not clicked on anything that that person had done, mm. which is great. I mean, do you think that reflects as well what we were talking about earlier, the fact that, as you were saying, it's about the individual finding their voice and mm, they've kind of gone mm, on and actually mm, mm. in so as you say that's something to actually be proud of the fact that they haven't just simply tried to replicate what you did and replicate the way yeah. you, your way of approaching it they actually found their own way and their own methods and approaches to things I would have said the other way round in some cases they were positive, not violently but I mean reacting against it and saying yeah okay that's all very well but what I want to do is so and so and then possibly nudging them towards it. Again, the people that I've supervised for PhDs, um, fairly obviously they'd only come to me if they wanted to do something that I got an interest in, but those I think those are all highly individual. Mm. Yeah, very interesting. Hopefully, hopefully one day some of my students will say like, "Oh, here, yeah. <laughs> well, if they go on and have jobs as well, and uh, they'll, they'll mention me in passing, that'd be nice." But uh, but yeah, no, definitely. I, I think there was there was a change. Don't know when, not concerning me particularly, but when I got the job at the institute, I'd always been friendly with Anne Robertson up in Glasgow. Um, I thought she was an excellent character. Um, and I remember her saying, um, oh, I do hope that they'll allow you to go on working on coins with the assumption from her student days where the supervisor or the head of department shoehorned people into the right degrees. I remember Kenneth painter, British Museum, silver, glass, saying uh, I, um, why he didn't do a PhD DPhil immediately because, I think I'm right in saying, um, Richmond said he ought to do so-and-so and he didn't want to do so-and-so, so, so he, he didn't do anything. 
So, mm. uh, so that was definitely on the way out then. So I was allowed to do what I wanted, mm. which was important. Yeah. yeah. When you talk about the going swinging action background stuff that you did, I just wanted to talk a little bit about because you you published this book on the later Roman Empire, mm. the archaeology of the mm. later Roman Empire. What a what was what was the reasoning to, to do that? What, what was the attraction for the later Roman Empire? How did you end up gravitating towards that as a subject? That's my own kind of particular historical period, you might say, in terms of, of archaeology, along with like, people like Ellen as well. So what, what, how did you come about uh, publishing on that in particular? Because it, when I started, it was a poor relation. Mm. I mean, when I was doing the DPhil in Oxford, uh, which was uh, 68, 69. Um, I went along with Roger Goodburn to, uh, what did he call it? Uh, oh, Coming to Voodoo this afternoon, which was Peter Brown's course oh, yeah. on the late Roman Empire, which was a very low-key affair in a basement room in All Souls with about 10 people sitting round. I mean, Peter Brown, now, if you if you gave a lecture, you'd be, find it difficult to get in. Yeah, uh, yeah. I saw on. him uh, give a lecture a number of, when I was a PhD student, uh, I went to see him give a lecture in London, and it was a, a humongous event. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, this was just 10 of us or something sitting around, and him, uh, I think it was the second year he'd done it. Um, and... It was eventually published, those lectures were published as, was it, Magic and Mysticism from Marcus Aurelius to Mahomet. And it started off by saying um, he'd had great difficulty in finding a faculty who would take this sequence of lectures because to give the series at Oxford, it had to be on a faculty list. So he'd gone to literary humaniores who said, what, 284, no, wait a minute, it's 283 they finish, not 284, or is it 285? Can't remember. They don't use 284. Uh, it's all that. So Marcus Aurelius is stretching a point, but Mohammed, oh, go away. So he went to theology, um, magic and mysticism, Marcus Aurelius to Mohammed. Oh, I'm sorry, theology, we don't deal with mysticism. So that was that. I think he eventually got it in under sociology or something like that. So, right, that, you know, that gives you a good idea of the attitude to, say, later Roman Empire. Perhaps the title was a bit unfortunate, but at that date. So that was the first course apart from coins, that I did at the Institute because it was a poor relation. Then there was April Cameron at, was she at King's then? And Alan Cameron. Um, and that gave it more strength. Um, and the pictures are so much nicer. <laughs> I mean, compare, well, there's colour. Yeah. What colour have you got in the Empire before... The fourth century. Well, colour that survives, I guess, at least anyway. Hmm? Well, I mean, we'll have sculpture, obviously brightly coloured, but. It doesn't now. No, well, I that's mean, the if thing. You, yeah. If you want coloured pictures, 
you've got to go to those late illuminated manuscripts. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I, 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 I find late antiquity fascinating period is what I've gravitated towards. As I say, I think part of that is due to um, I was raised in a, in a Catholic background, so going to church, hearing Latin, that sort of thing, you know, the ceremony, etc., all kind of rang a bell for me, and mm. um, that's carried on. But just generally speaking, I find it a fascinating period. Um, the you say the imagery of the whole period, like when you see the the tetrarchs in porphyry as well, I find oh, those I... those images so striking. And I was I was looking at the uh, I was going to give give a copy of Lady Roman Empire to someone. And I thought I'd better just have a look at it. And I was reading through, I, I realised that people wouldn't necessarily have a religious background. So there's a glossary at the end. Um, I was reading through that. I, I rather like that. It's, uh, it's Christianity in um, three or four pages mm. and all the problems of. But, oh yes, right. One of my past students made a um, ecclesiastical error in something, and I pulled him up about that. Um, he said, "Oh, you know, people don't know about that nowadays." I was complaining about that to another person I taught at school. In fact, um, so it'd be nineteen sixties. He went on to be a teacher of history. I was complaining about this slight error. And he looked at me and he said, well, when you get asked in history lessons, you're, you're doing the Reformation. So you're doing Protestants and Catholics. Oh, that, that's impossible. Um, you start off and say, well, they're branches of Christianity. But please, sir, what's Christianity? Mm. And that was the 1960s. So it does need um, synopsis in the back. Yeah, that's the thing. Like sometimes that stuff, people can just take it for granted that people will know what that stuff is, and actually a lot of people no, don't. A, a majority won't yeah. now. Um, although there were always, it was interesting. There were probably more students at the institute from a home religious background than not, okay. which was interesting. Yeah. So you always had to be careful. At one stage in the later Roman Empire, said, phrased it wrongly, and said something like, "You'll never understand it unless you." I didn't say are a Christian, but it must have implied that. And a very orthodox Jew sort of said, "Do you mean that? Because if so, I I can't take the course." Mm. Um, so there were people. Um, Yes, you've got to be careful. Yeah. Well, I mean, even just today, I was, uh, funny enough, actually, rather fittingly, I've been teaching also about coins this week. Um, oh, good. <laughs> I was mentioning in that about the render under Caesar, the image on the coin, passage in the Bible. And uh, when I brought it up, you realise just how many people are sat there actually with blank faces. So many people just wouldn't have come across it at mm. that point. They, there's mm. no reason, I suppose, if you're... If you've not come from any sort of Christian background, then why would you necessarily, unless, I don't know, you call it in a film or something like that? You know, if that's yes. an example oh, of it. Life of Brian, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I usually round off by asking people about the, the progression of the subject and where they'd like to see it go in the future. I mean, where, when you're looking at the study of Roman archaeology now, are there any kind of aspects of it that strike you where you think, somebody really needs to look into that or that's something where we've got to really 
push to challenge uh, the notions that we have on it. I mean, we talked earlier about the approaches to Rome and Britain, but are there any other things that you, you sit there and think, yeah, that's that's something that needs, that needs looking at? Or in just generally, like the way the subject works, are there things where you'd like, oh, that, that'd be better if it changed? The whole thing, yes. <laughs> um, no, I don't, no, I think I'm resigned now. It's uh, The conviction is growing that it's implanted so early that all you can do is niggle away at rather small elements and not expect them ever to be welded into the general population's picture. Mm. Do you think archaeology, from when you started it here to where it is now, I mean, we talked about this already, do you think it's a drastically different subject? Or do you think it's, I mean, in the way it works, I mean, obviously what archaeology is is kind of still the same thing, but... Do you think the world of archaeology, particularly in Britain, has transformed? Oh, that, that's, yes. I mean, that's the fault of contract archaeology. And my main objection to contract archaeology is that they never get down to the bottom of the trenches because they're being told to, as it were, sterilise it down to one metre or something like that, you know, get rid of anything down to one metre. Um, and it drives me up the wall to go round looking in trenches and saying, well, yes, but how far down is natural and what's between the bottom of your trench and natural and so on? And, oh, no, 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 we, we can't do that. Um, and that, I think, is uh, disastrous. Contract archaeology means it's not research. I think almost... Well, I mean, Richard Bradley's done a terrific job going round the grey literature and picking out the important points in the prehistoric stuff. Um, but it did need someone of that stature to go round and, and do it, because otherwise it wouldn't have got into the general archaeological mind. Um, I don't see what you can... don't see what you can do about that because I suppose it is no it isn't better I was going to say I suppose it is better that sites should be excavated before they are destroyed sorry all sites should be excavated before they are destroyed no let's um, do absolutely minimal um, trenches with a JCB perhaps on every site, pick a small number and make the developers of all the sites pay for the proper excavation of a small number. Mm. Impossible. Mm. But, I mean, that, that's the only way I could see forward. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's... Mind you, it would mean that a large number of um, archaeological units would go out of business. Sad. Yeah, well, I think generally speaking, the uh, the model we have commercial archaeology in this country needs a sort of serious reworking <laughs> in various ways. Oh, the, the, yeah. the archaeology, sorry, the excavation is excellent. The archaeology leaves a lot to be desired because of the difference between competent excavation 
more than competent excavation and turning it into archaeology. Mm. Yeah. Just on a side note to that, I think there's some good stuff being done in terms of when you mention like the great literature, there's the Roman Rural Settlement Project where you, or by the ADS where you can access a lot of that stuff online. You've um, reminded me of my favourite, unfavourite quotation. Somebody that I've read in the last six months who I think should probably, I, I honestly can't remember the name, was possibly reviewing or had just read the Rural Settlement volume. Okay. And said one of the major points about it was that it clearly demonstrated that the Roman villa was not the major um, unit in the Roman countryside. Well, how can anyone in their right minds ever have thought that the Roman villa was a major unit? And that's in the last six months. Yeah. Oh, I just meant in terms of their, if you go onto their website, it's a good like database, basically. In terms it's of wonderful. Like, yeah. Yes. Uh, no, what I'm going into ex- an opposite of ecstasies about is that somebody should ever have thought that the Roman villa yeah. was the major type site in the countryside. We're back to the beginning. You teach Roman Britain as Roman towns, Roman villas and Hadrian's Wall. That's great. That's where that's where it's background. A complete a complete circle yeah. at which I think it's time to Yeah, no, yes. absolutely. Well thank you very much for doing this. Thanks for listening to Coffee and Circuses. The Roman poet Juvenal once said, people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses. But if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'd rather do it over coffee than bread. You can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses at gmail.com. That's with a full and. Don't forget, you can subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants. The theme tune is La Cajora by Roll Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org. And in the background right now, you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal, originally by John Williams, but you all know that, which is available on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a Diocletian. Diocletian.